0: Welcome to All About HR. I'm your host, Tom Horn, and I'm on a journey to learn about all things HR. I'm documenting my conversations with thought leaders, HR professionals, and real employees about everything from recruiting, workplace of the future, benefits, you name it. We're all about HR. Let's go. Welcome back to All About HR. We are excited to be back. We took our I think it was our second little hiatus, but definitely our longest hiatus. We got some great new marketing out there. Hope you look, hopefully you like our new logo. Season two, we are here, Denver, Colorado. You can't see it, wearing my New York Giants hat because I'm super excited about our guest today from New York City. Ben Brooks is going to be joining us. Ben is an award-winning HR executive and nationally recognized executive coach as a former SVP of HR, a large global corporation, an award-winning, nationally recognized business executive coach, Ben is truly a champion of others. Ben is the founder and CEO of Pilot. Pilot's award-winning program is structured around individual reflection, manager feedback, executive mentorship, and live group coaching sessions. Welcome, Ben.
1: Excited to be here, Tom.
0: Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, I'm super excited that you're with us. I'm excited to talk about how you ended up on this show. First things first, I mentioned you're from New York. Are you originally from New York? Where in New York are you at right now?
1: I'm in Chelsea in Manhattan right now. I've been here for almost 15 years, so it's definitely my, my new adopted home. But I was born in Texas, but spent most of my life in Colorado, so I feel like we've done a bit of a life swap. I, uh,
0: I left New York about 15 years ago, and I'm in Denver right down the street. I see you went to University of Denver. How was that experience for you?
1: It was an amazing experience. I, uh, you know, never, never been to an institution that was kind of more smaller or intimate like that. And DU is typically um, number one or number two for study abroad in America. And so I got to go abroad four different times and just had great experiences um, in the leadership program and just, you know, enjoying the best and and not having classes in the winter on Fridays in the business school so we could go skiing.
0: I mean, you got to be able to go skiing if you're in Denver. And you were here when it wasn't too traffic to go skiing here in Denver.
1: I was in Denver when it was undiscovered. It was, you know, sort of a cow town that was overlooked, and yet it was still a wonderful, fabulous place. And back when you could go skiing and actually park and walk right to the slopes and pay $300 for a season pass.
0: Let's get into uh, let's get to our first question. As all of our guests, because we're all about listening and learning, what are you listening to right now? Podcast, band, audiobook, whatever. What are you listening to?
1: I've been listening a lot more recently because I've been, I just finished a half marathon and I've been training. So I've got some pretty long, I'm not the fastest runner, so I got some pretty long runs to listen. And I, I'm obsessed with the pivot podcast, uh, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. I listen religiously twice a week. It's all about tech, business, and a little bit of politics. Uh, I've also been, you know, diving through some audiobooks, uh, crucial conversations all around having conflict. And I'm starting on Ray Dalio's Principles. Uh, he's the uh, co-founder of Bridgewater, the largest hedge fund in the world, and wrote a whole book about kind of um, how to define one's own principles and use that to guide how we make decisions and navigate life.
0: I love that. I've, uh, I've read Crucial Conversations. Excellent. Um, I'll get the rest of this up in the show notes, but I haven't heard of the Pivot podcast. So that, sounds, that sounds awesome.
1: It's, a, it's got a cult following, tons of people in tech and business around the country, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. The chemistry between the two co-hosts is, is insane.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a little bit sad today. Laura Unley is my producer, and uh, we started co-hosting a couple uh, episodes, and I'm uh, definitely missing her bit today. Uh, hopefully, you and I can keep that same energy going. I'm feeling pretty good so far.
1: I mean, maybe if this goes well, I'll come back and get to meet Laura. Who knows?
0: Oh, we would love that. Do something in person when I'm in New York?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: So, you know, it sounds like that pivot podcast is really great for entrepreneurs, for business leaders, people growing. You started pilot. Tell us about that. Like, is this your first company? What made you start it? Like, where did pilot come from? How are you where you are today?
1: Well, I slipped on some ice and got a big concussion, and decided to start a business. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I I, was in the corporate world, as you had mentioned earlier, and uh, I always thought of myself, I've always loved work and business, and I thought of myself as a corporate executive, and I was at a skyscraper in Midtown, and a senior vice president, and a team on four continents, and quite successful, and making good money. But I, I left the corporate world to take a little bit of a pause, thinking I work at a smaller company, but wound up starting an executive and business coaching practice and work with founders and principals and nonprofit executives, et cetera. But pretty quickly, I realized that I was having life-changing impact, but it was limited to my calendar. And there's only so much calendar I have, you know, only Beyonce and I and you, we all have 24 hours in a day. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so that was one of my friends is an entrepreneur. I don't know if you're into freaking flyer miles or points. The points guy is a big travel, you know, website and, and number one travel blog in the world now. And my friend Brian is the founder. And he said, you know, what's the oh. points guy of HR? What's the points guy? He used to work in HR and recruiting early in his career. So what's the points guy of, of coaching, of HR, et cetera? And that was sort of when I got really thinking of what would be a scalable way to reach more people. And that's when I put my life savings into founding Pilot, sold a house that I owned in Denver over in Park Hill, uh, put a, you know, a lot of money I'd saved up into founding the company with the mission that we want everyone to feel powerful at work. And really that power doesn't come from having okay. a vice president title. It really comes from the inside out. And how do we reach people and take you know the the magic and power of one-on-one coaching but, you know, get you know, 80% of the efficacy or 90% of the efficacy for 5% of the cost and really reach people that may otherwise not be able to fit it in their schedule, like busy high performers, people in sales, et cetera. Um, reach people that are overlooked in organizations, et cetera. And really, you know, address the thing that, you know, I, I gave a talk recently called, yeah, work sucks, but it doesn't have to. And so many people who spend so many, you, know, you have a bad day at work, you often have a bad day in your personal life and you know the blurring of work and life with remote and hybrid work it's so important that for our mental health for our families and loved ones that we feel powerful at work that we have good days at work that we work in environments and we always think the company or the culture or management or this and that but in reality employees have so much within their locus of control that they can do and so that's why we put together a a program a six-month virtual employee development program that's really focused on employees taking ownership of their careers and shaping the experience of work in a way that works for them.
0: I love it. Uh, Laura Mazzullo. Mazzullo? Yep. Uh, Eastside Staffing. I don't know if you yep. know her.
1: Oh, other, I, York, how how, how can I, I not? Yeah, I know.
0: Right. She's the best. Uh, literally one of the nicest people on the planet, but she talks about a lot of that um, as well. You know, bringing yourself, uh, Lori Rudiman, uh, yep. her book, you know, it's, you have to own that, but you're right, there's not a lot of resources helping. People tell you you have to own it, but there's not a lot of resources showing you how. Um, and I don't want this to be the pilot episode, but you have piqued yeah. my interest. Like, how do you, like, what are some of the things you do to help people be able to have that best day at work?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question because when we benchmarked and were researching the company, we kind of saw that there was a ton of things out there that were sort of advice, you know, content, blog posts, podcasts, books. And then there was other stuff that was enablement, you know, platforms, frameworks, templates, tools, et cetera. But they didn't really come together in one mm-hmm. integrated package. And that's what we've done with pilot. And so part of it is employees reflecting, slowing down, pulling up, checking in with themselves. know, we think like I, I work with a, a psychologist therapist every week and that's a wonderful thing to check in with someone else, but there's a lot of things I can do to just check in with myself. So we really focus on, you know, knowing how we're feeling, checking in with how we're doing, being self and situationally aware. We focus on employees soliciting feedback. Every engagement survey I have ever seen at hundreds, if not thousands of companies where I've seen the data over my career, feedback, career growth, all this is a a negative finding. It's one of the top things to work on. And yet employees expect feedback to come to them, to come from their manager and to come from a system. And often the best feedback is the feedback that employees go get, they solicit, from someone maybe other than their manager and maybe not out of a system. So we have them solicit that feedback we also have them advocate for themselves at Colorado yeah. State University. Uh, Professor Rich Feller did you know, research about career satisfaction and the number one predictive indicator of a satisfying career, distinct from success, satisfying. Like I really yeah. enjoyed myself was the degree to which people advocate for themselves. Speaking up for what they want or need to others, but also to themselves. Half the time, the audience we have to advocate is for ourselves, like take a vacation. You know uh log off for the day you know ask for the help you need set the boundaries get a different uh, you know deadline and then the last part of the course is to bridge the knowing doing gap it's sort of a grand canyon between what we know to do like seven hours of sleep and what we actually do which is be in bed with our phone at two in the morning and get five hours you know we want to bridge that gap and really apply and that's what makes coaching and mentoring and true development and behavior change different than traditional sort of training Is it's not just about amassing knowledge between our ears but it's about actually changing our behaviors to apply often what we know works or to avoid what we know doesn't work.
0: Yeah, I love that. I mean, it makes a ton of sense, too. Uh, when I was in New York in the New York Palace Hotel, you know, I, I had a business degree, had a hospitality degree, but everyone I worked with went to Cornell or from some European Swiss hospitality school. And I was treading water, trying to catch up and trying to compete. No one was training or developing me. And accidentally I advocated for myself and that was one of the greatest lessons I learned. Uh, I just, I just kind of lost it one day with my boss. I was like, how the heck am I supposed to? You're my boss. Show me how to do this stuff. I demanded. He's like, you want the course? I was like, give me the course. Uh, And he took me under his wing for the next six months and I, and he developed me because I made him, he was never going to do it unless I made him. And I blew everyone out of the water after that. And I realized, I can do these things, I can learn, but I have to master that. It's not always going and yelling at your boss and that's that's yeah, the best yeah, path. Yeah, yeah. But learning how to self-advocate um, and being aware of that was a huge step in my career. I was like 24 at the time and it, it just made all the difference since then.
1: And you didn't need to go spend a hundred thousand dollars in student debt on a master's degree from Cornell, which has, you know the number one or two hotel restaurant tourism management program, University yep. of Denver, by the way, number two. Um, but, it, you know, you didn't need to go necessarily do that because the resource was right in front of you. The answer, the solution was in your direct reporting relationship. And that's where sometimes, you know, we as humans, we always think the answer is really far away or we can't find it or someone else needs to give it to us. But often, again, speaking up for what we need is such a critical skill in our romantic relationships and our friendships in our communities. So a lot of what we're instilling in our six-month virtual employee development program with Pilot are, frankly, life skills that we're never taught. We're never taught in school Mm -hmm. or university or corporate onboarding or training, but they make a massive difference in how we show up for ourselves and others. And everyone that's been in HR for more than a minute knows that the core of most organizational or business problems, performance problems, are people problems. People not getting along, people not communicating, people not expressing themselves, people not knowing how to have a conflict, give feedback, advocate. And if we can solve those, we can accelerate the outcomes of our mission and strategy for the organizations that we work in.
0: Absolutely. And that I think that's a perfect transition too to where I think the bulk, you know, the idea from this conversation today came from is organizations as a whole, I feel like have lost some of that ability to advocate for them advocate for process, actually get outcomes that they want, and I think individuals get lost in those processes, get lost in some of these systems, and don't know how to bring their best opinions um, forward. And I, I'll cut right to it. Organizations, and this is what we're going to talk about today. Why do so many companies blow through implementation and literally have a bare minimum usage after? spending eight months trying to buy their HR tech. Where, where is that gap? How does that happen? Why is it so hard to buy something? And then once they do buy it, why is it so hard to get them to use it? Like, how does this happen? These are smart people. These are VPs. These are master's degree. These are business degree people. These are people that have been doing this 20 years. And I see it everywhere. So I made a tweet um, that was essentially, I just essentially read the tweet of that. And I saw you started going off. We got literally some of the best people in the industry talking about, Trish McFarland weighed in, uh, Meg Baer, SAP Success Factors, like everybody had an opinion. So I thought, I loved your insights to it. So let's start talking about that. Um, And can we talk about that from the bridge of Pilot? Like from your experience of Pilot, like have you seen this in person and what do you think might be driving this disconnect?
1: Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this topic because I feel it's sort of hidden in plain sight. This is something that everybody's struggling with, but yet very few people are talking about in forums like this. So my guess is we're gonna have a pretty, a lot of resonance with people on this. And we do, a, you know, one of the things we measure pilots Pilot is our rate of learning as an organization. It's a highly predictive for startups and high growth companies that, you know, your rate of learning is a great forward-looking indicator. And one of the ways that we, we do is we have a company insights meeting once a month with our, our, you know, our team and we get together and we're like, what are we hearing? What are we learning? What are we seeing? And one of the things we distinguish is exactly what you're talking about, which is it's so hard for our customers, our prospects and customers, even on the renewal side, to get budget, to get things through procurement, to get things approved, to align stakeholders, that that sort of like pre-decision is so hard. And then afterwards, making it successful is so hard. And we've got a lot of ideas and research around kind of root causes and things you can do about it. But it's a major pain point because I think we've got more data than ever from an employee listening perspective, right? That the last 10 years yeah. oh, survey the shit out of people, do us listening and all these great tools. And really they were pointing out for the most part fairly obvious known problems. But at least now HR has the data, right? Because you have to speak in the yeah. language of business, which is data. So you say, okay, rather than the anecdotal people complaining, you know, this happened, here's the data. This is an issue. Career develops is an issue, manager employee relationships are an issue, uh, feedback is an issue engagements an issue connection belonging Dei now there's data but like what do we do about it and I think the that's reaction. where HR gets in kind of this this it's like Indiana Jones trying to get through the jungle when HR goes oh we have we have a you know a retention issue we have a you know career development issue but then they go try to find a solution and, and, and more than ever people are buying rather than building because the mm-hmm. speed of business how hard it is to get headcount etc it's far more efficient to buy from subject matter experts who have polish something again and again and again than to build in kind of a mom and pop way from the ground up, unless you have huge resources and lots of time, which you often don't. But then HR is really, I don't ever know an HR curriculum from whether it's Sherm or Human Capital Institute or any other sort of organization that teaches HR how to buy and roll out programs. It's a competency for HR professionals that is sort of a very 21st century amazing, incredible competency. But so much of HR is focused on, you know, compliance and employee relations or other real technical operational things that are really important to get right and highly, you know, know, important in that regard. But in terms of driving change and making an impact, which is what, what a lot of people get into HR because they want to do that, they're really not equipped for the mission It'd be like putting people in our military and not putting them through the proper preparedness and training and tools. And then sending them out the battlefield and then being surprised that they're faltering. And that's what I think we're seeing. And that's what that Twitter thread really sparked in so many people's minds.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's been covered by a couple of people on here that say, HR people, stop hanging out with the HR people. like Go hang out with the business people. Go hang out with the CFOs. Go hang out. I think that would be a big piece. Sherm just closed this week, the Sherm conference down in New Orleans. Did I say that right? New Orleans.
1: Knowledge.
0: Louisiana. Um, I don't know. I want to go back and look, and and I'm going to be talking to some folks that were there for sure. But, like, there should be a business development chunk of those shows, and all these shows should – how to buy products, how to get it through, how to implement. I know Jason Averbrook, LeapGen, uh, those guys are talking about this ad nauseum um, as well. So I think people are realizing this, but I'm not seeing that wholesale – um, action to help buyers. So I think where you took us is a good place to start. So what are some tips or, or what's your thoughts on how HR can get better themselves at buying products, at getting approvals, at getting the tools they need? Because that's what I hear all the time. Oh, we know we want this. I can't get it. I just had a VP of HR that I've been working with um, to purchase People Element that literally is going to quit their job because the companies waited nine months after saying, yes, let's move forward to buy this product. It's not even financial. It's just procurement and blah, blah, blah. Um, HR teams need tools. It's not just wants. It's not like, I, I like an ATS system. Like, sometimes you need a freaking ATS system. Sometimes you need employee engagement now to operate your business. How do we get from need to acquisition in HR? How do we do better with that?
1: Well, I think, you know, HR sometimes gets in a sticky wicket of responsibility without authority. Hey, HR, Mm -hmm. what are you doing about a retention problem? What are you doing about DEI? What are you doing about manager enablement? What are you doing about recruiting and hiring? What are you doing about comp, pay equity, but then doesn't have the authority to go make the decisions, to buy the tools, to get the budget? And I think a lot of this ties back to advocacy we talked about a minute ago that, you know, HR doesn't necessarily advocate for itself. HR tends to just take, take, take in terms of scope and shit and everything else, but not ask. And one of the questions if you're listening to this is when's the last time you were told no? Because typically what I find with a lot of my HR colleagues is they look at a no is the most devastating thing. And they'll do everything to not explicitly ask until someone else essentially signals there's a lot of, I'm going to socialize, I'm going to stop by, I'm going to do this. You look at the, the the woman that's in charge of your sales organization, or maybe the guy in charge of marketing, they are fearless. They will say, yeah, <laughs> they Yeah, they will, they will they will throw down the gauntlet and say, you want me to deliver these numbers for this year? I need this and I need you to cut the red tape and I need you to cut the bullshit and we need to get this done. And there's a sense and they're, they're you know, and they say, oh, you're not gonna give me that? Okay, well, let me give you an adjusted sales plan for the year since we're not gonna have that. And there's a real set of boundaries and puts and takes in that. But I think that we're, we're very afraid, you know, HR is typically, a well, core competency is getting along with fellow colleagues. We have internal clients. We yeah. wanna make people happy. There's kind of a pleasing thing. We're less comfortable as a function with conflict. And when HR is in the buying role, they're not the client anymore. they or they're not providing client service. They are the client. Yeah. And HR is not used to being the client. HR is not used to setting the deadlines. We see all the time people will forward something to the attorneys to review or to procurement. And they don't say, I'd like this done by Friday. They're like, please, if you maybe have time, could you look at it? That's no way to get a result, right? You have to drive the process. And I think, again, driving a consistent process that's non-repeatable, you know, benefits enrollment, annual reviews, compensation. These are repeatable processes that HR knows in and out. But when we're talking about something like navigating an organization to get stakeholders aligned, to get budget allocated, to get, you know, to select and align on a particular provider or vendor and scope, to get the right participants and people aligned to get through procurement, legal, IT security. These are things that are less repeatable. People don't typically, some organizations have sort of an HR procurement person or a, um, a learning tech stack buyer or something like that but most of the time not. So this is something that we're rusty at. We'd be like, if you only played tennis once a year, you'd probably suck. And that's a part of it. Is there's not enough cycles on it as well. Yeah,
0: yeah uh, I, I agree. I think that's that's great insight. And I think something you said earlier and something that makes me love working at People and at what we do is you know, with all these engagement surveys and all this employee data is not just go in and ask and, and you have to do that. But now I love so many organizations we go, hey, you now know what your engagement index is you now know what your spread of actively disengages you now know what the key items are with definable actionable data points now go in and be on the table and say we need this these are the numbers we need because here's the data so you've got to be able to ask and i love being able to empower organizations with that data that i don't think they had before and if they did it wasn't i don't think used and brought to the table with boom This is our data. These are the outcomes we need to now push for because of the data.
1: And there's a courage that comes and the data can be a nice shield in a wonderful way. And then but then ultimately, to, you know, if if HR people could go take that, there's a course called the Keras negotiating course. It's been around Chester Keras. He was a huge aircraft head of negotiations in like the 40s and 50s. It's in the airline magazines. If you fly a lot, you know, that's in There's usually a thing about negotiation. And Chester Keras said, you know, you don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate. Most HR people don't have negotiation training or skills, but this is something you can go do in a two day workshop and you learn and you put the data and say, Hey, we said we're committed to X, right? Meeting our hiring plan, addressing our engagement, you know, DEI turnover, whatever it may be. Here's what I want to do and what I recommend. Oh, you don't want to do that. Are we still committed to that? Okay, great. What's your counter? Because we're typically, you know, making these hollow Proclamations around our you know, commitment to our people. I'm using air quotes, but then we're not you know, aligning our stated value with our actual behaviors. Behaviors, by the way, include budget. And so, part of what people learn in sales training and in negotiation is there's a term that my dad was, my dad's name is Tom as well. And, and his, he always talked about, you know, most salespeople fail because they don't ask for the order. They'll sort of woo and romance and entertain and demo and all this stuff and references and check-ins and all this stuff. But ultimately, you have to say, Tom, are you ready to get started with using Pilot? And then you have to shut the F up and you have to wait and see what Tom does on the other side and hold your own discomfort and just wait to see what happens. But if you don't ask, it's like just keeping buying someone a drink at the bar. At some point, you have to say, you want to get out of here? Otherwise, you're just going to run up a big bar tab, be drunk and go home alone.
0: Yeah, I, I always describe sales as advanced communication. Everyone thinks sales is a dirty word. It's just advanced communication. And one of those pieces that everyone thinks doesn't matter is ask, ask, ask. It makes such a difference. Well, I kind of asked, you didn't ask. Well, I gave my point, you didn't ask. That small detail that you said is the biggest thing for sales, but not even just sales. It's a dirty word for a lot of people. Advanced communication. That is how you advance, how you communicate. Two other people to negotiate to get what you need. Simple.
1: Making the ask. A S K. Make that ask, and that is so key. We actually had a pilot cohort. The COO, now the president of a you know a a large you know um, nonprofit here in New York City called Housing Works. At the end of the program, he required every employee to meet with him and make an ask for their career.
0: Wow, that's great.
1: Different role. Turned out, people got different role assignments. They got spent certain training. They got different resources. They got, and and people were so uncomfortable. And he said, "What I realized in my career is that I didn't ask for anything until I was in my forties. I completely missed out. I just kind of bobbed along, and it worked out. But boy, did I wish I learned to ask earlier." And they, you know, they're a client service organization, a nonprofits helping people with homelessness and HIV. We had a bunch of resistance. it was like. I'm here for the clients. I'm here for the mission. I'm not here for myself. HR has a look-alike, right? I'm here to support our employees and managers, yeah. right? We're not, you know, this isn't about us. This is about everybody else. And there's a little sort of um, martyrdom in some of that. But what we challenged them, we said, look, if you don't take care of you, you can't get what you don't have. If you don't take care of you and get the resources and the things that you need, the authority, the air cover, the support, the co-sponsorship, the executive statements, whatever it may be, how can you do what you need to do? And so asking and then being able to tolerate if I ask you for a sale I could be able to tolerate that you say no not now you have an objection and that's an emotional and a psychological strength that we need to build up because oftentimes we'll only ask if we're sure we'll get it which that requires a lot of mind reading yeah and we often People will say yes when we think they won't. I, I remember I, I joined a nonprofit board. One of the best things I ever did to learn how to ask is ask for money for nothing in return besides goodwill for a cause and maybe a tax donation. And I was shocked at how easy it was when I would just ask. I would say, "Hey, I asked a friend. I said, Michael, can I have five thousand dollars?" I've never asked Michael for a dollar in my life, and we had been friends for two years. I don't, you know, and I just said, and, and he goes, "Yes." Sure, seems like I I was blown away. I I thought it was gonna he was, you know, I just was practicing on him. And that was what I was surprised. And I became so good. I became the chair of development for our nonprofit. And we were helping to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military and led the effort, and we're Legal Services National Board. Former CEO of of Verizon was on our board, four-star generals were on our board, serious, serious folks. And and I just got so into it. Then I would go back to work it was very easy for me to go to my CHRO and say, I'd like to add a headcount and here's what we're going to get for it because you said you wanted to do this thing. And I was blown away at my batting average. It was fairly high. And by the way, it wasn't 100%, it wasn't even 80%. But when we had a meeting and some of my colleagues who were other executives, often 15 or 20 years older than me, were complaining, why does Ben get this? And Ben goes on the trip and he gets the headcount on the spenders. And my very demure, upper east side, very polite boss, turns to everyone and says, because he's the only one who effing asks mic drop. It was back to the
0: ask. It's a mic drop. Yeah. Well, it goes back to where we started here, which when I was talking about me getting my development, because I asked. asked. And then I demanded. Yeah. And then I got, and it changed my life. This has been great. So we're going to take a very quick break, and then we're going to talk about what you do when they say yes when you do get the buying decision, that's where I think there's even more meat on the bone. Uh, This has been a great start. We're gonna take a break. We'll be right back. All right, it is time for the HR Hot Sauce with Ben Brooks. Ben, are you ready?
1: I am ready.
0: What is the best job you have ever had?
1: Enterprise Rent-A-Car Management Training.
0: What's the one phrase at work that drives you nuts? We can. Do you like working on rainy or sunny days?
1: Rainy, if it's sunny, I wanna be outside.
0: How can someone make your day at work?
1: Make me laugh, inspire me, or help take something off my plate.
0: Favorite interview question to ask or be asked?
1: What are your kinks? Kidding. Um, (laughs) 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 The look on your face.
0: (laughs) Maybe I should record these. (laughs) Uh,
1: We could keep that one, you know, but but I'd say um, one of the the questions I like to ask is, you know, what's people's biggest misperception of you? And then the follow-up question, is, I say, what's the difference between misperception and perception, which is a trick question, because there is none. And so it really gets into what other people think about
0: someone. Favorite song to bring you out of a funk?
1: A bunch of them. Probably Mariah Carey, make it happen.
0: Final question: mild, medium, hot, or nuclear?
1: Depends on the cuisine, but probably medium.
0: Medium, right down the middle. All right, Ben, you are done with the HR hot sauce. Let's get back to the show. And we're back talking with Ben Brooks. We've been talking about how HR can better enable themselves to to get the products and the tools that they need. I think we're going to expand this to just organizations as a whole. Once you know what you need, once you're moving towards getting what you need, how do you get that done? So they tell the HR team, yep, you can go out and buy this product. And then it takes 10 months for them to get that product bought and implemented. Why? Why is that buying process? I feel like nobody knows how to buy. If you You know, back in the eighties and nineties, I'd take you out golfing, we'd go Marlin fishing, we'd smoke some Cubans. I'd shake your hand and I'd walk away with a six digit deal. That was sales. I feel like it's gone so far the other way that now there's a committee and then the committee of VP and C-level people make decisions and then it goes to procurement that sometimes takes months and then it goes to legal. And then the C-level and VP people are going, why is this thing not there? Or another scenario, All the people that need the tool are there. The people that have the checkbook won't even see a demo and know what it's about. And then they make the final buying decision based on other people's interpretation with no actual, never seeing, touching, hearing, any of the value proposition. Those are the two most common things I see. What are you seeing? Why do you see that organizations are having such trouble buying? I mean, everybody's talking about this. When we brought this up, it was like a bomb went off on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, CFOs have done a masterful job of sort of reducing demand and consumption by just making it hard to spend money, which there's something functional about that. You don't want people just, you know, wasting or anybody can do anything. But I think part of it is we haven't defined the buying and approval process. You know, ideally, a good salesperson helps a customer say, well, who are the key people? What are the steps? Right. What are the potholes that we want to avoid? What timeline do we want? Setting a deadline that very seldom do I find a nature buyer I'm like, well, what time? I'm like, we'll just see how long it takes. I'm like, well, what if that was like, I don't know, building a house? You wouldn't, and you wanted to get in the house before school started so you could have your kids in the right school district. You'd be managing the hell out of that builder, right? So, why don't we bring the same sort of intentionality along the way and some urgency? And I think that requires essentially a really rigorous project management like approach to navigate the org, to follow up. I mean, if you follow up with procurement or legal every single day, you wanna be a pest. You don't wanna just like leave, oh, I emailed them. Oh, this lawyer's really busy, great. Can we talk to another lawyer? Can we use the outside counsel? Just legally, hey, this is $50,000. we even have to review this? Can we just make this a PO? Can I put this on my corporate card? It's sort of knowing these alternate paths. We have customers at Fortune 50 companies who have all sorts of back doors to do things now they're still, you know, compliant, but they're like not through the full gauntlet. They say, hey, we're not a, you know, fifty million dollar procurement of a critical system that, you know, where all of our customer data is. We're yeah. doing a program, so it's like finding the right path because it doesn't always have to go through an IT security review. We don't do any IT integration with Pilot, and we don't collect any, you know, non-sensitive PII. And so all, then companies go, oh well, wait, maybe we don't need to do this. I'm like, yeah, here's a 16 page document of all our risk controls, so you don't have to worry. We've avoided it security, but there's a mess inside of organization. We had one organization, a fortune 100 company coming at us with all these it security questions that we thought we answered. It was actually two different teams doing the same review, not talking to each other, and I had to finally call her and said, do you realize that your organization is a mess? And do you realize that you need to sort of play quarterback here and call an audible and find out which team is doing what that's how much sort of excess and waste and chaos there is they didn't even know inside of an organization that two teams were doing duplicate work that would already been that's wasting their resources and their money. So I think part of that is you have to be very vigilant and there is almost, you know, it's an order of magnitude harder to do something new than to keep something going. You ever heard about the, you know, the renewal process for your email system at your company, you never have because it's just there and it's just on and people use it and they don't question that it's, Forty-five year old technology invented off a construct of the Pony Express that totally sucks. It's just this necessary evil that is there. But you want to bring in, you know, a fifty or hundred thousand dollar tool or twenty-five thousand dollar tool. It's like, well, we better, we better really think about this. And so that's a part of also setting the relative, you know, kind of ROI and the risk profile and helping people calibrate because, in, especially in mature and larger organizations people are oriented more around reducing risk than pursuing success or opportunity, which is in, in HR in particular, the legacy of the function was control cost and reduce risk. Those were the two goals. It was never about the people. Yeah,
0: I, I think this, I, I think you're nailing the piece right there. It's about reducing risk, not creating excellence. I think that's a and, mic and, drop statement right
1: there. And, 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 and by the way, careers and people that are winning awards and speaking at conferences and writing books and are on podcasts and all of that are never the you know what I made sure nothing got through no you know we, we bought no new HR tools because they could go yeah. wrong. It's always the people that pushed through that took a risk and maybe it maybe doesn't even work out. but I, I can think of zero examples of an HR practitioner who is fired for taking a risk and trying something new. I can think of many examples of HR people who are laid off or fired from not keeping up with the business from being seen as not value add is overhead is being outsourced to, to, you know, India, etc. And so part of this is like keeping up with the speed of your organization. And I think that realizing that if you're in compliance or employee relations or something, yes, you have a risk, you know, if you're in comp, you have a cost control thing. But if you're not in that, you are trying to maximize the return on the investment in your people. You're trying to get more out of the fixed costs of your people. And that is really what the CFO, and no matter what your industry is, that's what it's that's what it's fundamentally about. And we have to think in a more entrepreneurial and upside and pursue opportunities rather than fret. We had I had an HR person say to me once when I a co-worker of mine, you're handing an employee a loaded gun. And I was like, "Get a hold of yourself!" <laughs> like, really, we were literally turning on commenting on our in, intranet that was attributed to the person and linked to their corporate ID. There was not a loaded gun. I said, "Look, we have we have policies already in our handbook about inappropriate conduct. If someone you know is harassing people or doing something, we already have a remedy of how to do that. And there's social pressures for them to not. And it's completely traceable. This is not a loaded gun. So quit being so fricking hysterical." And let's move on we wound up winning tons of awards and totally changing our culture but we had to get away from the resistant naysayers who thought that their role in a room was to speculate everything that could go wrong the the best strategic hr people are focused on what could go right and risk adjusted nothing is perfect nothing is certain but you have to say hey you know people may misbehave we'll know who it is and we'll have a remedy for it It's rather than saying, let's control a zero likelihood. It's to say, it's probably low likelihood, and it's also low severity. So move on.
0: So I think tying, again, just trying to tie things back together here is the risk versus trying to be excellent, that's out there, but no one says it. It's very similar to, I've set this up for a sale, but I'm not going to ask for it. If, If organizations can go, hey, listen, we get risk. We're risk averse. We have a system, we have an RFP, we've got procurement, we got legal, we got all these people involved. But if you just recognize that and say, Hey, I get that we're managing risk, but we also have to manage our desire to be absolutely fantastic at what we do and create phenomenal outcomes and move this business forward. We have, like, I think if organizations internally, when they're trying to like pulling their head out, do we buy, do we not buy how we do just stop and go, okay, what's the middle section, what's the intersection of risk and being great. And let's not just, we all know there's risk. Let's talk about it. We all know we're trying to be great or need this tool. Let's talk about it. But I think it's out there, not talked about in the way that people aren't asking for the sale. Yeah. And I and think people,
1: and, and, yeah. and there's not a sophisticated way to manage risk, which there you think, you know, likelihood severity controls. If you think about risk, we're we'll always break it down. Likelihood, severity controls. How likely is the risk? If it did happen, how severe would it be? Like, would it take the company out and you'd be out of business? And then what are the controls that we have to mitigate either the likelihood or the severity that typically if you use language like that, it can help smooth that over. But to your point about implementation, you got to shorten the gauntlet. You can't wait 10 months or eight months because you will run out of willpower and conviction and steam and then you'll get the contract started and you'll do a crappy job of implementing and you won't get the return and that's the bigger risk right because You're the whole buying
0: money. decision was based on risk it wasn't based on outcomes
1: upside exactly yep. exactly and Oof, so, and we then, got a
0: contract with no risk let's use 10 percent of this thing we got Woo, man we're safe well,
1: it's, a, it's a little <laughs> like talent management where we spend 90 percent assessing and 10 percent developing yeah we are really sure that we know the hypos. We are really sure that we know the key competencies of senior execs or the succession, but we do very little to make them better because we wanna make sure that, in, in the, yet the data says we only know about half our hypos, this, you know, for all yeah. of the 90% assessment. And so I think that the implementation piece, just because you build it or buy it, doesn't mean that they will come. It's the anti-feel the dreams. So yeah. there's a whole thing that we are competing for employees' attention and discretionary effort. And when they're working from home or they got mobile technologies or an internet connection, we're competing against ESPN, crypto marketplaces, Reddit threads yeah. and Twitter, podcasts, everything else you could imagine, you know, shopping blogs, everything you could imagine, let alone everything yeah. else internally. So part of implementing, and that's where I think Pilot We Succeed, You know, the, is, is really helping build a plan, get people excited, make it sexy, have it be fun, But also realize that HR is not done when they flip the switch and say we're live, it's launched, right? If you've ever, you know, what is pick a system, talent management, talent acquisition, learning, DEI. When you flip on a switch, that's when it starts. That's the start of the race, not the end.
0: Well, and something that's occurring to me too that, you know, I was going to jump when I'm in business development mode, what I usually say is my biggest job as a salesperson is to manage the timeline, understand the timeline. Yep. And I don't think that's something organizations have at all. They've got these systems of risk adverse, but I think if there's one thing that could help organizations buy better, be more efficient and get the tools they need faster, it's to add timelines to these process. Okay, we're going to have a process that mitigates risk. If, when we buy at this level of product, we have a two month process. We have to get demos, contracts, negotiation, boom, RFE. We're going to do all these things. We're going to do it in two months. And I think if organizations can commit to connecting real time, maybe even six months for bigger things, maybe even eight months. But if they can just actually have timelines, I think the people in their organization, the people they support their organization will get tools quicker. Because in sales, I'm always trying to, I go, listen, I'm not trying to give you my timeline, but I'm trying to understand your timeline. And right now, more than any time in my career, nobody knows their timeline. I'm talking to people and they're like, "Uh, I still don't know when this meeting is going to happen. I still don't know when the buying is gonna happen. I still don't know how long procurement takes. I didn't know procurement was even involved until now. I think if you can have a timeline on their side, not just on the sales side, I think a lot of this will go a lot more smoothly.
1: And if you're looking to advocate or ask for something to your boss or if you're a senior executive here, someone's got to play chicken and flinch and say, we want this son of a gun live by September 1st, come hell or high water. And sometimes it's simply that CHRO or C-suite person, or you get the business sponsor, right? The line of business president or the, the head of sales or someone head of product or engineering that says, we need this by this time. That's key to accountability. By when, for whom and why are the three tenets of great accountability. And so you get someone to simply throw out a date and you work backwards to figure out what that's going to take. But it's much like negotiation and asking project management and critical path. Timeline development is not a skill that H.R. largely has. H.R. is great at responding to crap that falls from the sky. Oh, my God, we had a holiday party. Someone got sexually harassed. Oh, my gosh, this person quit. Oh, this person had a death in the family. This happened. We've got to do this, etc. HR is very good in the reactive firefighting rise to the challenge, which is critical. You saw it in the last two years, COVID yes. happened, remote work, PPP layoffs, workplace safety. Return. HR smoked it, killed it. I mean, yes. you know, it, heroes, right? And in, in the greater visibility than we've ever seen for HR. I write about this in HR executive magazine every month. This is something I'm really passionate about. We have to play offense, not just defense, right? That's playing yes. defense. Like crap happened. We have to respond to it. When we're buying something or rolling out a new initiative, we're playing offense. And how you play offense is you set the pace. The answer of I don't know, it's like if you don't know who's got to know. Most people, you and you ask 10 other people, they're like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And it's like, is this a, is this a mnemonic or something? Like, Somebody needs
0: a, to know. What yeah. is it? Go, like. and, and even if you're not- like, the letter. You know, ask your boss. Someone's yeah, got to know.
1: And and, and the risk aversion will have people want to, I'm not going to be the one to say, propose it. Hey, I think we can get this done by September 1st, or I think that this is the thing. Get alignment. Some people say, you know, yeah, that sounds good to me too. You may not have to, you know, you know, be authoritarian or dictatorial. You may not even have the legitimate authority to be the one that says so, but you have to start like any negotiation with some sort of opening offer or anchor point, and then it starts to get worked right? That's where it goes. But you've got to manage that critical path on the timeline. Because again, if you're taking 10 months to go through a procurement cycle for a two month program that you want to you you got to line all of that up, you got to say "Is 10 months worth it, maybe you can't change that. But hope but I think you can always squeeze that accordion down in terms of timeline. But then you have to figure out getting it started. But then how do you keep it going? Because there is many a tale of an HR tech product that's been bought that started maybe with a bang, maybe with a fizzle, but has cobwebs and tumbleweeds before you know it. Think about an intranet, think about an learning system, think about an online mentoring matching system, all of these things seem really exciting. And before you know it, your usage is really, that's part of why some of the vendors don't show you very good stats yep. on participation, because they don't want you to know how few people use it because they give you per employee pricing, not per active user pricing, which could yep. be twenty x based yep. upon those things. And so that's why it's really critical to be a vigilant customer to get the participation and the engagement and the satisfaction mm-hmm. metrics. We ask with Pilot, every time someone touches our product, how satisfied were you with your experience today? We have a heat map across every interaction to know the weaker parts of our product or training yep. or staffing or anything. And we report back to our customer, Nestle, SM Global, Diageo, MetLife. Here's what your employees thought of this on a, on an aggregated basis over six months on And we collect Great. all the data. So then they actually know rather than a one-time survey at the end via SurveyMonkey. monkey, Hey, did you like the program? Yeah. So, so that's the life. Yeah, how, how much you're going
0: to, how much you're going to get from that? Um, yep. Well, and it's, Just like, I think when it comes to implementation, if the buying process is so cumbersome, I think people are exhausted, tired. A lot of stakeholders are disinterested and moving on to other things by the time you buy it. And there's no timeline for buying up front. But then there's this hard timeline. Okay, we signed a contract on June 17th. This needs to be implemented by August 1st, period. And then... You get it by August first and it's closed and no one thinks about it. I think the timelines on the buy bi- um need to be really rigid on the front end, which they're not. And I think on the adoption end, I think they need to be more expanded, which they're not. Which is if you make a six week implementation, you're essentially saying we're only going to focus on this product for six weeks, and then just assume it will be used for the other forty-four, you know, or forty-six weeks of the year. What's your Implementation by August one, great. Full adoption, what's your adoption percentage by October one? What are you looking at December one? Is there more? Is there another module that you loved a year before when you evaluated and you completely forgot about because you're just using core functionality? So I think it's tighter timeline up front, more expanded, longer timelines on the back end to drive that adoption and keep people interested and keep it front of mind. And I love that you've got this user experience data coming at you all across that's in your face that shows you, you're, not, you're falling off right here. It's not a mystery um, what your usage of the product is. And it's not a one-time survey monkey that, all right, yeah. Thumbs up, thumbs down.
1: Yeah, and we typically talk about five phases with pilot customers. There's obviously the contracting, right, in the, the buying phase. Yep. There's the sort of onboarding and the prep, right? like that's all the forks go live on the system. So post-contract to kind of go live. Then there's kind of the kind of activation phase, right? Like you're communicating, you're on the internet, you're on Slack, et cetera. But people think that only those three, there's actually two more, which is the sustainment, right? And continuous improvement. Oh my God, this was hard. Oh, we should have added a single sign on crap. You're right. Oh, we need to integrate to this thing. Oh, we got to fix this bug. We have to communicate about this. We need to find the super active power users and feature them in the newsletter. So people know that they're getting results from this thing. That's that sustainment and iteration and continuous improvement. And then there's the other side, which is at the end of it is like expansion, renewal. You may have only done it with a division or a particular office or a particular site. You may have only done certain modules with that vendor or program because you scoped it appropriately. you got to figure out your budget to protect it, right, to get it maybe into a multi-year yeah. contract. You've got to... If you, want to, if you want to protect yourself from a lot of this try to do multi-year agreements right because then you're just like reducing the frequency of the cluster that is you know the, the buying process and you gotta so there's like this other side which is the internal stakeholder management because the same people that maybe run that rfp committee or whatever that was you gotta yeah. communicate and hr tends to say i'm gonna own this and and hold this i'll look at the data we always talk to our customers don't just take the reports that we say and put it in your in your folders Take them and share them. We actually bring in. We have our best customers bring in their C suite. We have. We have. Yeah. You know. We, we have. We have one of the presidents, one of the top five highest paid people at a financial services company that we've all heard of, comes to a meeting with our team and HR to hear about this program. And we meet them where they are with just with data, the language of business. Meet them where
0: and, they are. My favorite they are, thing.
1: they are so engaged. Because we start with data, not with narrative or buzzwords in HR that, that business leaders feel stupid, like they don't know enough about, so they, they, they dive out of it and they want to get it. We start with numbers and they are glued and they are so engaged in a way that they're not engaged around other HR initiatives because we're not trying to present perfection. We're bringing data. We're saying, hey, you made an investment, right? You allocated capital. What's the return on that investment? Let's look at it. And we're not afraid to discuss it or share it. And then when it comes to asking for more budget, they know what it is. They know it's been competently managed. They know you've got a plan to improve it. They know you measure the shit out of it. And then it's like, of course, how can we do more? And they become your advocate, but you got to do the change management, not just at the front end, but throughout the entire thing for the people that cared about it. So you don't have it like, oh, we got to try a different thing this year. or Oh, I want to bring in my yep. friend or blah, 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 that you've got to really strategically do the change management all the way along. And you have to build those sort of advocates who will have your back. They will protect when someone comes in or a big salesperson from, you know, you use Workday over here and they want to knock this thing out that's working really well because they have a module and you got to have someone that says, you know, stay off his lawn, right?
0: Yep. Yep. And you're touching on something too, we're both, On the vendor side, we've both been on the people operations side, but we're not kicking the tires of all the buyers. The best vendors don't sell you and disappear. The best vendors have systems not to just sell you more things, but to help you drive that adoption, help you have best practices to get this out, not just to disappear. You have to have a great client team. You have to have great focus on not just renewals, but... How do you add value? How do you keep a pulse and go, hey, client, we just spent a year doing this. You're here. Like, how do we help you? And a lot of organizations will do that. And the client goes, yeah, no, thank you. We're fine. We're busy. We're doing other things. And go, no. (laughs) like Push the issue. Keep it on their table. Because I've done that. And guess what the client says every time? Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you for making us.
1: Totally do that.
0: Thank you for getting our attention here.
1: The vendors have to advocate. And if you're a buyer, an HR buyer, and you want to reduce risk, right? And you want to help build confidence in the decision in yourself and others diligence, the implementation and the analytics and the reporting. Ask to speak to the team that will help implement it or a customer that has implemented it. Give say let's see the reporting that you're going to see. Right. Don't just say, oh, there's a dashboard or, hey, there's a hotline you can call or this and that. We had a, a, a demo platform we were going to use and we we're going to buy. And the sales team is really schmoozing us with all the stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and, and but some seemed a little off. And, I, and at the last hour, I said, we're not signing jack crap until we talk to the implementation team that we would work with. Right. Yeah. And our confidence went way up and we ended up buying the product. And by the way, we like the implementation team a whole lot better than the sales folks. And and they were like so dialed into what we needed. And so it helped us think in advance so we could prepare and be a good client and implement probably. And one of the questions asked is, you know, tell me about your most successful customers and tell me about your least successful customers using your product because your product is great. You're, you're got the highest reviews in G2 and all the other stuff. But it depends on the implementation. We want to get the best results, the highest ROI. What are the best and worst practices? And they told us everything.
0: Well, and think about if that happened earlier 20. in the sales cycle, would that shorten it? Would that give you more confidence if you're looking under the hood? Cause that's what, like, I learned that one of my first sales jobs was selling fitness equipment. And I remember going to the fitness show, you know, Star Trek and Lifetime. You know, everyone had cool treadmills and everyone had, I was like, everyone has cool shit. One company, I'm not going to say who they were, had great customer service that took care of their people and always had enough staff to like, get your parts and always had everything you needed after you bought their cool shit. That's what you need to understand in the buying process early on. Yes, everyone's got cool shit. Table stakes. It's tech. There's, all, there's dials everywhere. Who's going to support it? How are they going to support it? How are they going to partner with you to drive implementation, not just sell you something and go away?
1: And and, and I'll tell you what, we we do customer research and we ask our customers, you know, why do they keep buying? And MetLife, we talked to, and I said, well, tell us about your other L&D and talent and DEI vendors and how do we stack up against them, right? Asking for feedback, soliciting feedback, the pilot way. We're doing it in our own business. And they said, you know what? You're one of the few vendors we ever hear from after we sign a contract. Most people, as soon as the contract's signed and the invoice gets processed, we only hear about on a quarterly business review or when they want a renewal... And if we need something, it's hard to even get a hold of someone. And with our company, we assign a customer success manager. You have their cell phone number, right? You can text them. You can call them. There's a whole bunch of other people available. We actually let, we have a text message, even for employees using our platform, they can text message us for customer service and we get right back to them. So when they're busy leading a meeting or doing sales or designing product, they're not on an 800 line on hold, listening to elevator music. They're getting efficient service, and by the sure. way, we use all those service issues to improve the product, so people don't have to reach out in the first place, right? So there's a loop on all of that because we want to avoid that. That's a bug, right? So yeah. those are the things that you know. It's like, and I, and I thought I can't imagine a vendor not reaching, you know. But they're like, no, this is table stakes. It', it, it one of the you know Fortune one hundred company, like a great brand, great people work, with unbelievably smart, competent, loving, fun people at MetLife. They're great customers. And yet, the vendors that they're getting beyond pilot are just the bar is so low. And even things yep. like analytics, instead of saying, "Well, you know, there's a dashboard and you could slice and dice and do all this stuff," and I have to go learn a new interface. We create executive level beautiful reports in guess what, a PDF. And you know what we you know what we do? We email it. Yep. Easy. It shows up in their email. They're on their iPhone. Meet doing them
0: where whatever. they're at.
1: Exactly. And then you know what? When they review the the, the deck with us. They see an advance and guess what they do when they share it to the executive at SNP global, they send a forward of that email. It could not be easier versus them. What's yeah. my password? Wait, which part of the thing do I log into? Wait,
0: that's whatever misses It's Oh, I need a giant HR, and I'm not anti big HR system, but oh, we need this central point and everything's there. Well, I just bought a cell phone. Verizon is one of the largest, most powerful successful companies out there. At the Verizon store, the person helping me had to call four different numbers because everything was so specialized because they were so big to get anything done. Whereas when you're with a little bit smaller vendors or a little bit more, even larger vendors that are more focused on what we're talking about, that's what you want. What do I have to do to get the answers I need? Do I have to go somewhere or does it come to me? Is it at my fingertips? So you've got to look at sometimes... It's way more efficient to have uh, it's more efficient to have everything in my HRS. No, it's not. It's way more efficient if I can call Ben and go, Ben, I got a question. Yeah, I'll get that right over to you. That seems a lot more efficient than I'll just go into the same queue. The other 800 managers in my organization are in trying to fix their parts of their modules.
1: So totally and in particular, you have to look at recurring versus non-recurring. If I need to know our head count and I need, I'm going to be asked about it every day. I probably should have a recurring way of looking at that. Right easy, Mm -hmm. quick. But if I'm looking at the analytics for a talent development program, I'm not looking at that daily, right? That's not data that changes that fast. It's not that much of recurring work. So I need to have it be easier than, you know, a self-service portal to do that. And I think that's the empathy. And you want, and you mentioned smaller vendors, typically small business owners and smaller vendors in general provide better support. They're hungrier for it. There's economic incentive. They need it. If yep. you're the if you're the forty seven thousandth customer, it doesn't matter if you churn or not. It doesn't matter if you leave a low NPS or not, right? You know that's and you know yep. we looked at the talent the, the net promoter score. You know, it's a negative one hundred to one hundred is the score range on net promoter score, and it's you know that question: How likely are you to yep. recommend Pilot to a friend or a colleague? Well, we talent management software. The average net promoter score we found out is negative fifty four. So, so so a zero typically on NPS is like decent. If you get get a zero, that's that's sort of decent, you know. Where when we 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 ran our NPS last week, we're we're, our our rolling average last two years is fifty, right? We're at fifty. You know, Apple is at about sixty. You know, USAA Bank is about sixty. Disney's about sixty. So, but but what gets us to have our customers feel that way? It is being able to call somebody it's anticipating their needs, it's challenging and pushing them, not just taking orders or rolling over and saying, hey, I know you made this investment and you wanna get the best out of it. We really recommend you do these things. And by the way, oh, you're gonna have a sponsor kickoff, make it easy. We give talking points. Here's a video of another sponsor doing it so you can have an object lesson. You wanna make doing, you know, it's like in safety consulting, I did a management consulting around safety. You always wanna make the right thing to do, the easiest thing to do. Typically we make the right thing to do the hardest thing to do. So the product team and the customer success teams need to be thinking about the empathy because it is hard to be an HR person. It is really hard. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a, I have a, a, a reservoir of empathy for what that takes. Because when I would spend millions of dollars, when I was at a Fortune 250 company buying these things, everything I bought to solve a problem became my next problem. Whatever budget I had for the vendor, I had to have a shadow budget for FTEs to manage the bullshit around all of it. And so it's so hard to get through that gauntlet of buying and to implement it. We have to, the vendors need to step up their game, bring more empathy and anticipation to the real world concerns of applying and deploying these things. And HR needs to figure out where their priorities are and really increase their rigor and their accountability and their advocacy and their strategic change management and their use of data to roll these out with pizzazz because both parties win. And then they're on the stage at the SHRM conference talking about how they transform their culture around DEI or how they fix their recruiting problem or whatever else, because the solutions are there. It's just really hard to get them in place and to get them used.
0: Let's summarize this. We covered a ton of ground. Um, Amazingly. I think honestly, um, I think step one, if you're a buyer and you're an HR, ask. Use data, ask. Ask again, take your no, give reasons why, push back, ask. Two, define your process, your timeline, and know what it is. Don't just buy the number of of people. Hey, we're ready to go, cool. Oh, I didn't know we have this. Um, Ask internally, again, ask. Um, Anything else to add on that buying side?
1: I think, uh, it, you know, and bring urgency, right? Urgency, that's that's yes. not the timeline, the urgency. It's like, you know, you've got you've to help your colleagues prioritize. They got 50 other legal agreements to review. They've got 20 other budget requests to get through. They got other meetings. You've got to be friends with the executive assistants. You got to get on people's calendars. You have to say, we need to decide this by this date. If you don't-
0: especially persistent.
1: Yes, bring and manage urgency.
0: Yes, you get the product. Expand that timeline. Don't just implement, implement, but have a longer vision of how's it being used? Monitor, how's it being used? Are we getting the most out of it? Stay engaged with it. And then on the vendor side, that's not their responsibility. It's your responsibility to keep that torch lit and to keep them engaged, not just sell them new stuff, but to really utilize and get the functionality that was sold, that was purchased.
1: And vendors have engagement too. They have discretionary effort. And with customers that partner with them, that have success, that can be case studies, they will over deliver. They will provide extra support. They will let you try things for free. They will bring in experts. They will come do a talk and you can look like a hero and extract a lot more value for the same dollars because you're a great dance partner with them.
0: It's all a dance. It's
1: all a dance.
0: We're just trying to help people. Dance better. No one wants their feet stepped on, and you don't want to be stepping on the feet. Let's have a, let's have a beautiful HR tech dance. Ben, this has been, uh, this has been fantastic. It's a great conversation. Um, I think this was probably one of our longer podcasts, to be honest, and I'm okay with that because I think every step uh, I learned, and this podcast is all, it's about learning all about HR. Um, any closing uh, statements? I'm going to put where to find you, or where do we find you, Ben?
1: Yeah, that'd be my ask. Is I want to connect with my HR community. That's my ask. And that's on LinkedIn, is the best place. I'm Ben Brooks. I'm very findable. LinkedIn.com slash N slash Ben Brooks um, NY. Well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Ben Brooks NY is in New York, B E N B R O O K S NY. And then pilot, you know, we can help you. If you're looking to do something, you're looking to bring something in for talent, for retention, for DEI, succession, we can help you. So pilot.coach, like the word pilot, P I L O T. Coach, We're very findable and we want to be a resource, even if you're not looking to buy something right now, et cetera, we've got a lot of resources about how you can advocate and really implement and win. And we know that when we add value, create long-term relationships, we're all about doing that on the front end. So I would love my number one ask is let's connect online. I pump a lot of content for the HR community out. that's all about HR people being successful and empathizing with the crap that we have to deal with every day. And really not forgetting the North Star. We're here to help people.
0: That's why we love you, Ben. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. We'll have all that information in the show notes. Check Ben out. You'll see him all over the place. Really excited to be back with season 2.1. I don't even know what we're calling it. We're going to 2.1. Everything's 2.0. We're season 2.1. Really excited to be back. We got another episode coming up in two weeks.